Today, our Old Testament readings from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33, beginning with verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. The word of the Lord. The next reading is from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have had in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for our gospel reading? From the gospel, according to St. Luke, beginning with verse 25 of chapter 21. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. The gospel of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you today. I just have to, I don't know if apologize is the right word, but, but uh, I mentioned some of the craziness that went on with us this weekend. And uh, one of the things additionally to that is the, the room was supposed to be decorated for Christmas and for Advent uh, this week. And uh, I guess that didn't happen. Flavor Catering had told us they were going to do that. And, uh, and so we didn't decide to do decorations on our own. So it's part of kind of us just stepping into Advent that you will see some decorations unfold over the next few weeks. Um, also, funny story, I love our Advent wreath. Um, I had bought new candles and everything was ready to go. And those got locked in Ashley's car, Ashley's van today. The children's ministry curriculum that was today got locked in there. So we are thankful that Christ meets us even when we don't have everything right. <laughs> we don't have it all put together. So uh, uh, next week, hopefully we'll 
have things a little bit better arranged. But today does mark the beginning of the season of Advent, and it is the first Sunday of the church's liturgical year. Um, Advent, I think, is really difficult for us to celebrate in December in our world. And I'll tell you a little bit why. Uh, Advent is different from how our world tends to celebrate Christmas, okay? Um, One of the main reasons is because Advent begins in the dark. Remember that phrase today, Advent begins in the dark. Advent has a sense, the season has a sense at its core of longing, of recognizing brokenness, of recognizing need. And we live in a culture that's pretty obsessed with Christmas. And yes, the story of Christmas is something that should be obsessed over. Okay, it's a beautiful story. The incarnation, Christ coming into our world, taking on human flesh, other than the Easter story, the Christmas story is pretty central to our faith. Um, Advent is this season of expectation, of longing for that, of hope. But Advent is not superficial hope, okay? There's a reason why we hear the song, the thrill of hope, a weary world rejoicing. That's because the good news of Christmas provides hope in us that we know Christ has come into our world, that he will return again. We trust in that. But in Advent, we also recognize that the world is weary, that we live in a weary world. We have to start in darkness. We start in weariness. We recognize that not all is right with the world. We can't put on a superficial joy. We recognize the world's pain. Advent does not begin with the shout of Merry Christmas. Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the midst of the world's pain. We anticipate because not all is right with the world. If you're looking for a good resource, if you want to dig deep into the roots of Advent and the theology of Advent, I I really recommend, I've been reading this great book by um, Fleming Rutledge, and she is an Episcopal priest. She's 81 years old. She was one of the first women priests ordained in the Episcopal church. And she's now known as, a lot of people consider her the best preacher who's living today, okay? So I encourage you to look up her sermons. She's great. She pastored at Grace Cathedral in um, New York City for a long time. And she writes now, and I've been reading her book about Advent. It's beautiful. So if you wanna dig in deep to this, it's a a really, um, really beautiful book. So I like to tell you guys this because a lot of what comes out today is from my reading of of Rutledge today. And so I wanna cite her for sure. But historically, it has been believed that the season of Advent actually celebrates three Advents. Okay, three Advents, so stick with me. First one is Adventus Redemptionus. Adventus Redemptionus, okay? And this one is the incarnation of Christ, that we long along with Israel, we long for the weary world to rejoice in Christ's coming. When Christ came in the flesh, born of a Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, Christ came in the flesh. Adventus Redemptionus. Then there's Adventus Sanctificationus, I think that's right, right? Um, And this, we recognize Christ's advent, Christ's coming in the presence of word and sacrament. So the presence of preaching and in the sacraments, that we believe that Christ comes and that Christ is present with us, that he is with us now in his word. He is with us now in the sacraments. And part of that too, the outgrowth of that is in the sacramental cross-centered life that Christ is present in how we live with one another and how we live in the world. Adventus uh, Redemptionist, 
Adventist sanctificationists, <laughs> and Adventus glorificamus. Adventus glorificamus. This is the coming, the future coming in glory to be our judge on the last day. Okay. This is the one I think that feels squishy to us sometimes. We don't really know during Advent how to think about this, how to celebrate this. But as Christians, we hold to this great hope that he is returning, that the king will return and all wrongs will be made right. Okay? We often forget this in this season, that Jesus will come again and judge the world. So we're anticipating during Advent, we're longing, we're anticipating, but we're not just anticipating Christmas presents under a tree, we're anticipating judgment. Think about it, we're anticipating judgment. That sounds harsh, but most of our passages in the lectionary have to do with judgment, not merriment, Okay. But what it, that's exactly what we're waiting for, is God to judge the world. Now, why? This is hard for us. Judgment has gone out of style. But I think the reason why we don't talk about judgment very much, the reason why this is hard for us, is we often have a misunderstanding of what we mean by judgment, what we think about as judgment. Um, in contrast, we don't talk about judgment very much, but we do like this idea of justice, which is very close to the same word. Justice refers to the end result, and judgment is the process of bringing it about, okay? So everywhere we turn today, we hear people talking about justice and justice is important, it's central, but you can't actually have justice without judgment. Justice in the biblical story is really the same word as righteousness. It's this idea of things being made right. But this righteousness is not first our righteousness, it's God's righteousness, so anytime we talk about righteousness or judgment or the world being made right, we're talking about justice happening, judgment coming in the character of who God is. Wrongs being made right in the character of who he is. We are judged by the God who desires to heal and love and restore us fully. So judgment is this idea of revealing brokenness in order for brokenness to be made right, okay? The reason why we don't like this word is because it means that all the stuff in our world and actually the stuff in our lives is being revealed. But it's actually what we're deeply longing for. We're waiting for healing, for a world made right. That's what Advent is about. It's more about judgment than it is about merriment. So what does that mean? Does that mean that Christians are supposed to be Grinches this time of year? <laughs> No, not at all, okay? I saw a tweet this week that said, um, maybe during Advent, instead of saying Merry Christmas, we should yell to people instead, who told you to flee the coming wrath? No, don't do that. Don't do that. No, we can join in the merriment. We do. We celebrate. We watch Christmas movies, even the crappy Hallmark and Netflix ones. Ashley and I have indulged in some of those, right? We listen to Christmas music. So, and, and part of this is because Christmas celebrations in America, they do rumor Christmas itself. They do. They rumor this story. We can celebrate that. We can jump into that. It's beautiful to see our world in all of its brokenness during this time of year has some sense of opening up to self-giving, to loving one another. Yes, it's hollow a lot of times. Yes, it's superficial. Yes, it's cheesy. But we can jump in and go, there's something about that that points to God's story. And that's true and that's good. 
As Christians, we are to be in the world, and yet somehow we're made up of a stuff of a different world, of stuff of a different world. So when we understand that Advent is first and foremost about this posture of waiting for God, I think that helps us to avoid the pitfalls of consumerism, which tempt us during this season. The promise of a fix, a pathway to joy, a way to numb the world's pain without entering it. The judgment we hope for is a judgment rooted in the character of our loving God. As the church, we're always living in a state of advent. Why? Because we're waiting. We know that God has come, that God is with us, and that very coming is a sign of the reality that God will not and does not leave the world as it is. He won't. We are given this promise that wrongs will be undone, that things will be made right, and so we long for that. So theologians have described it this way. We are, we are in the already and not yet of the kingdom of God that God's kingdom is already here, God is present with us, and yet we still recognize it's still to come in fullness. It's already and not yet at the same time. The promise of future glory awaits us. So I wanna talk quickly about these passages that we just read. The first one is Jeremiah 33. And this is one of the passages that gives us hope of this threefold advent. So our Old Testament text is this announcement that better days are ahead for Israel, okay? So Israel's longing. Um, this passage is part of the book of consolation in Jeremiah, and it speaks of the future consolation of Israel. And what Jeremiah does, the prophet, is he echoes the cry of Israel, which is really all of our cry. God, put things right, restore things bring justice, bring righteousness to the world. The Christian story we have to remember is first the story of Israel, that God chose a people to carry his mission in the world, a specific people. And throughout the story, we see that Israel is often unfaithful, but we also see that God never gives up on them. So there's this thing, Israel's often unfaithful, God never gives up on them. He hears their cry. He rescues them from slavery in Egypt. No matter what they experience, they can look back and go, God was faithful to us then, he'll be faithful to us again. At the time of this prophecy, when it was heard, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. And so um, they're in exile in Babylon at this time. They're away from their land, the land that God had given them and where God lived in their midst. And they they lived in a time where they were ruled by pagans, which was really hard and it became murky. And so we've probably got some like Israelites who are accommodating to Babylon and they're going, well, these guys must be doing something right. They have this big empire. And so we should just kind of go along with what they wanna do. And then you probably have other Israelites who are going, oh, Babylon's always horrible. We're just gonna rebuke them and rebel against them and call them out. And you've got a mix of all these people. And then they're called to a better way. The prophet calls them to a better way, um, to reject temptation, not to accommodate. They're to live as a people in Babylon, seeking the peace and prosperity of Babylon, but also pointing to something else, living differently. So this prophecy that we read today is a splash of water in the face, that there is a time coming when things will be better for Israel. This prophecy, they speak of David, that, that there were David, the time of David when he was king was like the time that was best for Israel when they were kind of at their peak. 
So Jeremiah looks back and says, it'll be like that time, like it'll come out of the line of David, his righteousness. Jeremiah says, there's a good and better day when God will restore us. And it says, it'll be good news for Israel and for Judah, for both kingdoms. The kingdoms will come together. This gives us an example today of hope expressed in difficult times. What does it look like to have hope when times are hard? This is a really hard time for Israel, and yet the prophet speaks through and says, it will not always be like this. Not denying their pain or their struggle, but there will be a day when things will be restored, when things will be put right. And then our Thessalonians passage seems a little like random today. So we read these Advent passages about judgment and about the coming of God and about justice and righteousness and all these things. And then the Thessalonians passage seems like a really kind of casual text, okay? So on the surface, it doesn't seem really Advent-y. Paul is saying to this church, he's saying, I am praying for a time that I wanna see you face to face. He says, I miss you. I want to, I believe face to face, I can help restore your faith. So I wanna see you again. That's what he's describing. I had the opportunity this past week, um, and I'm really thankful for all of you who stepped up in my absence last weekend, um, but uh, I had the opportunity to be with my family over Thanksgiving and a little bit longer than that. And um, a lot of times, you know, I'm really close with my parents. I'm really blessed in that way. I'm really close with my mom and my dad. And, uh, but uh, over the years, over the past few years since we've moved away, there's just a natural distance. I think all of you kind of know this, and this happens with growing up, and then it happens with separation that, uh, there's, just, there's just natural distance that happens in our relationships. I used to work side by side with my parents at, at a church, right? I, we talked work all the time. We talked family, we, all these things. And then there's kind of a distance that's been created. And now we talk on the phone, but there's something about the phone that's just not quite the same, right? Um, we talk on FaceTime, and that's usually dominated by Lucy, okay, which is wonderful. That's how it should be. Um, but there's kind of a natural distance created there. And then when we go back home, usually it's all the family. And so you talk to them and you talk about the weather and you talk about sports and you talk a little bit about work and all these kind of things. Um, but this time when I was with them, uh, Ashley and Lucy actually went to the lake with her mom. And I just like hung out with my parents for a long time. I haven't done this in forever. We went to a movie together, like the three of us sitting on a row watching a movie, right? We, we went to dinner together. We binge watched Frasier because that's something they do, right? And we had lots of face-to-face time. And there's something about face-to-face that's different than anything else, isn't there? There is something about the tangible and the physical and presence that matters. Um, changing gears a little bit, I, I have to say I'm... I'm pretty alarmed at one trend in the church right now. And I, I usually try not to be critical of other churches or anything. I think there's hope in so many different things. But there's such a trend right now to move towards virtual community as opposed to tangible community. Um, there was a megachurch pastor um, a couple weeks ago who announced, started out his announcement saying, I have great news. I am launching a new church in every city okay, new church in every city, through this iPhone app, <laughs> okay, and he pulled it up, and, and basically, it is their content from one church, along with a lobby, a virtual lobby, where you can chat with other people, okay, and I, I was pretty alarmed by this, and, and I can tell you why, but let me first just say that 
We record our sermons here. We post them online. I think social media can be really wonderful and beautiful. I think website, all that kind of stuff. Nothing wrong with inspirational Christian content or new technology. I love all of that. But if our story as the people of faith has this thing called incarnation at its center that has to do with like physicality, with flesh and bone, with real life, there's something inherent to our story that has to have that piece to it, that has to have life-on-life connections. Real presence is important. In fact, I wonder if true restoration happens, I want to say only, (laughs) in face-to-face real physical life. Real bread and wine, hearing the imperfect voice of the person next to you as we sing hearing a pastor who proclaims the word of God in your midst, giving real handshakes and hugs to one another. Virtual can be a supplement, but never a substitute. It can't substitute for real community. And I think Paul is saying this, uh, not that they had a virtual world at that time, but he's saying, my letter is not enough. I wanna restore you face to face. My letter is not enough here. From this passage, we get this sense even that when he talks about blamelessness and holiness, that that stuff is communal, that it's not just individual, that the church is an organism, that somehow my faith and your faith are interconnected, that when we are in community with one another, that we impact one another, that our faith grows together. One of the ways that we bear witness to the fact that Christ is with us and one of the ways that we anticipate his future return in righteousness and in justice is when we stand with one another, particularly in suffering, in difficult times. That's one of the ways that we bear witness. Christ is coming again really and truly and physically and tangibly. And so when we live really and truly and physically and tangibly in the midst of suffering with one another, that bears witness, that anticipates that future day. And the churches that have understood this best throughout church history are churches that suffer and struggle. Churches that have been under persecution. I think we have a difficult time. And one of the reasons why faith in our culture has become so individualistic is we're not really a church that like suffers. So it's hard for us to kind of understand that idea. But throughout history, people who have suffered have understood we're in this thing together. We can't do this by ourselves. Faith is communal. The church has always embraced solidarity with those who are struggling, that we struggle together. In this Adventist sanctificationists, We recognize God is with us in word and sacrament. And that transforms us to be a people of the word and a sacramental people. In fact, that's one of the reasons we named this church sacrament. Um, We launched this church at a time where every church that was starting had a really cool, edgy kind of name to it. And we decided to pull out this old theological word with lots of baggage for lots of people (laughs) and to call our church that, okay? Sacrament. And one of the reasons for that is not just that we receive the sacraments here, even though that's central to what we do, but that historically the church has believed that we are a sacrament, that the church is a sacrament that as you live, you are people and we are a people in the world who point the world to this place where heaven and earth meet, the intersection of these places. We are sacrament. We are a sacramental people. 
And finally, in our gospel text, this gospel reading is about judgment and it's weird language when we read it. It's cosmic apocalyptic language. So he talks about these cosmological phenomenons. He talks about the earth shaking. I saw this week the um, earthquake and the threat of tsunami in Alaska. I don't know if you saw that. And we're seeing even now, like in our world, like these, um, these signs of like things that are shaking and things that are changing. Um, but in the verse before this, he has talked about the armies around the city, the roaring of the sea. He talks here about the son of man coming on a cloud. And then he says, all of this is going to happen in the next generation. Okay, what's happening here? Well, the key to understanding this whole section and this whole chapter, I think, is to understand the temple, what, what the temple was at this time in the first century. We don't see the whole context in our passage today, but in the section leading up to this, the disciples were commenting on the temple. We talked about this a few weeks ago. They're telling Jesus, wow, this temple is magnificent. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And Jesus says to them, oh yeah, this temple that you see, it's going to be torn down. It's going to fall down. Then he begins to describe this time when the temple's going to fall down, this temple, this time of terrible upheaval when everything in the world is turned upside down. So he says there will be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be false teachers. There'll be tremendous persecution for the disciples. He tells them that even though things are difficult for them or will be difficult for them, that they should live faithfully. Now, at this time, the temple was not just like a church building. It was everything for the Jewish people. It was a sign that God lives with us. He lives with us and we know that because he has a house in the neighborhood. So this is everything in their culture, uh, their society, their economics, everything was centered on this place, on this temple, on God's house. And it was also believed that the closer you live to the temple and the closer you were to the temple, the closer you were to God. Okay? So you need forgiveness, go to the temple. You need healing, go to the temple. But then over time, because of politics and because of certain people's like preferences, they started like keeping certain people away from the temple. So Gentiles aren't allowed to be at the temple. Women kind of had a special place in the temple. If you were broken in your body, you were sick in your body, you couldn't enter the temple. And so all this stuff kind of happened. So the temple, which was this beautiful, wonderful thing, had become corrupt in a lot of different ways. Um, and this temple was magnificent. Solomon built the temple, but Herod, the Roman governor, was rebuilding it, and it was the largest and most imposing structure for hundreds of miles in either direction. Okay, this temple was amazing. And Jesus tells his disciples that this place, this center, this heaven meets earth kind of place, that place will be destroyed. This passage is about how the temple is going to be judged. This place where heaven and earth meet would be destroyed. This judgment of the temple was a sign of judgment for the wider world. It was the beginning of the world's systems and structures beginning to come under judgment to be called and finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus's words came true. If you know history, in 70 AD, the temple was ransacked and it was destroyed by the Roman army. His prophecy came true. The center of Jewish faith was destroyed. The Roman armies burned it, and finally Titus ordered that the remains be demolished. 
And this sent the Jewish world into like complete chaos. Like everything is over. Our place where heaven and earth meet, God's house has been destroyed. Okay, so that's great history, but what does that mean for us today? What does that even matter? Because I think that we have systems and structures in our world, even good ones that we cling to, that we hold on to. And all of them will be shown for what they are in the light of Jesus. That's what we anticipate in Advent that all of the world's systems and structures, the ones we consider good, the corrupt ones, will be, a light will be shown on those and they will be shown for what they are. Advent is painful because it's the picture of a world longing, a weary world longing. It's a picture of a world under judgment. Advent is coming to grips with the fact that our systems and our structures, structures that we hold on to are not going to hold up in the end. They're not enough. So if we've tried greed, the obsession with money, we realize that greed won't do, it won't do. We try lust, we try an obsession with sex and we go, no, that's not enough, that won't do. We try control, maybe if we can just accumulate more power, no, that one fails too. We try performance, innovation, human progress, fail, no won't happen. And yet we keep going back to those things. We keep thinking maybe, maybe they do still run the show. Maybe this thing really is king. Well, this is us anticipating the day when those things will be revealed for what they are, that they're incomplete, that they're empty. As a pastor, I have the opportunity of um, meeting with people and meeting with people particularly when they confess sin. So I've had a lot of times where we meet with people and they wanna say, I gotta tell you something. It's something I haven't told anybody else, but here is what's going on with me. Here's this broken place in my heart and in my life. And I love it because it's an opportunity to immediately remind them when they confess sin of the unconditional forgiveness and love of God. To go, God loves us and forgives you. And on more than one occasion, somebody's been shocked when they'll tell me their deepest, darkest secret and sin. And then I look at them and I smile and I go, that's awesome. What? <laughs> I'm not saying their sin is awesome, but I'm saying you just came to the fact that you realized that that thing is empty and hollow and you need help. That is a beautiful thing. That's an amazing thing that you've come to that place, that you've recognized that thing that you've realized that this thing is making you sick and not making you whole. That thing is being judged and will be judged by the righteousness of God. And we trust in that, that if we believe our God is loving and good, we want that loving, good, healing God to judge us because he'll shed light on it so he can heal it, right? Do you see how judgment is different than sometimes we think about judgment? And it's brought to light and it's healed by the love of God. And in that moment, we experience a glimpse of God's future world. In closing here, judgment is this idea of revealing something, of showing something for what it is for the sake of healing. I've talked about this at length. You guys have heard this, but I think it's good that if we're sick and we go to the doctor, if we have a broken arm even, right? It doesn't help us to hide it behind our back, right? We have to say, heal me, help me. That's really judgment, is shedding light on that thing that's broken so that it can be healed. Judgment and justice is a kind of rectification of making things right. 
There is a difference between judgment and condemnation. We all know the John 3, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him, right? So that this, that condemnation has been eliminated, that we are given salvation instead. This is what's done in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that sin was dealt with in the flesh of Christ. And so the early church was having this struggle, this wrestle like, okay, we believe that, that sin was dealt with, that there's a new Lord and savior over the world. And yet the world still looks pretty dark still looks pretty broken. So what's going on here? In fact, a lot of the early church was taunted by this question. The pagans would come to them and go, well, if your God is Lord of the world, why isn't everything right? Why are you still persecuted as a church? That doesn't make any sense at all. And so what the church did is it went back to the words of Jesus and it embraced this idea of hiddenness. If you reflect on the parables of Jesus, The church continued to describe God's kingdom the way Jesus did, like a doorkeeper keeping watch for the master's return, like a seed planted in the ground that we're waiting for something. The seed has been planted. The master is returning. And now we sit and we wait and we hope. And this is so interesting for us because the early church believed that would happen in their lifetime. So they're thinking, hopefully this weekend, Jesus is gonna come back and put things right. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still waiting, and we're trusting in hiddenness, and we're trusting God has been faithful over and over again, and he will be faithful again. The master will return. Fleming Rutledge, Rutledge says this, in spite of God's apparent hiddenness, the memory of what God has done in the past continues to activate hope for what he will do in the future. The memory of the past activates hope for what he will do in the future. She says, this is the movement of the Advent season. The God who hides himself is still the God of the covenant. He is absent and present at the same time. Right? As awaiting people, we get to participate in God's kingdom now as signposts of that new world. And even as we do that, we remind ourselves of its hiddenness. That's why we need each other. When we gather together, and I've said this before, we gather together not just for our own inspiration each Sunday, but because there's somebody sitting next to you that needs to be reminded that even though things don't look like it, that God does, he is Lord and he is King and he is returning. And so we remind ourselves of that hope in our songs and in our word. We remind ourselves of hiddenness. In the midst of a world of racism, poverty, suffering, war, hurricanes, we stand, the church stands, bearing witness to the God whose kingdom is now hidden, but will one day be shown for what it is. We bear witness in every act of forgiveness and love and compassion and faith. We stand with those in darkness. We bear witness and we wait. We are watchmen. We are watchwomen waiting. We are waiting for it with bated breath. We are standing on our tiptoes. We know the promise. We know the good news. We stand here in the midst of all that is wrong with the world and we hold on to that promise and we wait and we long for the master to return. Christ has come, Christ is here, and Christ will come again. 
Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We embrace today in this Advent season our role as waiting, watching people. We do this on behalf of the world. The whole world is longing, is waiting. And yet some of the world has given way to just going, ah, there's nothing better out there. This is just how it is. Some of the world has held on to false hope. Some of the world has just tried to stuff it away, pretend everything's fine. Today, we stand as a people who know that you are good, who say we want, we long for your judgment so that you can heal us and heal our broken world. We trust you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.